So uh, last week, hard to look much past the Cubs last night, but last week, uh, at the end of the second presidential debate, the moderator asked the two candidates, what is something that you admire about your opponent? And um, Hillary Clinton said, I admire Donald Trump's children. And then Donald Trump said, I admire, and then he named a a quality and aspect of Hillary Clinton that I have admired about Hillary and that I admire about Donald and that I admire about President Obama and that I admired about President Bush before that and Clinton before that and Bush 41 before that and Reagan before that. And, and it, I mean, for, for almost as long as I can remember, I have marveled at their ability to get back up and uh, fight again. And that's what he said. You're not a quitter. You keep coming back. And uh, I am amazed, long after I would wave the white flag, long after I would crawl under a rock in humiliation, long after I would say, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, they just come right back. And there is, a, there is something about that tenacity, about that resilience, about that, uh, about that stick-to-itness that I think we could all learn from, especially because it's my sense that we have become perhaps uh, a little softer than uh, previous generations. One of my friends, uh, who you know, he's preached here before, Sky Jatani, has said that, uh, he goes, my grandparents fought against the Nazis. My, uh, my dad's dad was shot down in a B-17. Uh, my, my dad's mom was uh, a nurse for General Patton's troops. Uh, my, my mom's parents were part of the biggest mass exodus between Pakistan and India, 43 million people on the road. Uh, half a million people died. He says, I sleep on a memory foam patri- a mattress and my kids get participation trophies. He says, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a different day. The Wall Street Journal this week had an article stating that in the last uh, few years, colleges and universities have had to scramble in order to uh, hire more counselors because there is a 50% spike in the last few, five years of students suffering from anxiety-related disorders and uh, seeking help to sort of manage the stress that they're under. Uh, I, I, in thinking about all of this, I, I decided to go back and look at uh, sort of a different day, and I, I uh, went back and watched the movie Cool Hand Luke and uh, the boxing scene in which uh, Paul Newman is Luke. He's, he's in a prison. He's trying to take over. George Kennedy is the, his drag line. He's in charge of the prison gang. He's bigger than Luke. They're going to they're gonna settle this in a boxing match. And if you've seen it, you know that Kennedy just manhandles Newman, and he just keeps pounding on him. And, but but, but uh, Newman just keeps getting back up. And everybody start, at some point, everybody stops laughing, and they say uh, to, to Newman, to the Luke character, just stay down, just stay down, just stay down. He's just going to hit you again. And he just keeps hitting him, and he keeps going down, and he keeps coming back. And eventually, uh, Dragline can't do it anymore, and he walks out. And so the last man standing is uh, Newman. And there's this sense that, you know what, I, I'm, I'm just going to keep coming back. I think we see a bit of that in Daniel. And um, it, it's not, it, it took me a while to identify it. It's not as, as clear, uh, it's not as out front as his courage or as his faith or his humility or his wisdom. And as I was, as I was reading through Daniel over and over this past summer, I kept saying, okay, there's something else here. There's something else here that I'm drawn to about this guy. And I can't quite 
name it. And for a while, I thought it's, 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 maybe it falls under this self-leadership category. Uh, his, his ability, like we looked at David in uh, 1 Samuel 30 last week, his ability to encourage himself in the Lord, you know, to go back. I thought, well, maybe it's his, his calmness, his pressure under fire. Uh, maybe it's his, it's his uh, gravitas, his depth, right? I mean, he's just, he's just a man among boys in so many of these situations. And so I, I kept changing what I thought it was. And for a while I said, you know, it's his obedience. He just does the right thing, come what may. And I love the situation in uh, Daniel chapter 6 where it's now, it's not the Babylonians in charge, it's the Persians, and Daniel's back in the court, and it's Darius, and, and, and his, the, his advisors grow jealous. Darius's advisors grow jealous of Daniel because he's the favorite, and so they set up this, you know, this trap, and they say, Darius, you should pass a law that's irrevocable, that if anybody prays to anyone else except to you, oh, great, ma- majestic, you know, powerful, godlike Darius, if anybody does that, then they should be fed to the lions. And uh, they do it. Uh, and of course, David uh, boldly, right? I mean, it, the text says that he, as before, he goes up to his room three times a day to pray and he opens the windows. So there's, a, there's no hiding what he's doing here, right? Anybody can see this. I'm going to do the right thing, even though you guys are running around like idiots and you're going to try and trap me. I mean, there was just a, so I, I do think that obedience is a big piece of this. But Eventually, I decided it's not, it's not simply obedience that's so noble and so, so powerful and so helpful in Daniel's life. It's obedience over time. He, it's not just that he does the right thing once. It's that he just keeps going. And he stays the course. And there's a sort of a righteous tenacity. There's a, there's a resolve. There's a determination. There's a, there is a, there is just a, a drive that he seems to hold on to that he's just going to keep going. And as I said, it's not, it's not immediately obvious. It's perhaps not the first thing that jumps out at us when we're reading through Daniel. But it's mentioned early on, Daniel uh, chapter 1 verse 8. There's a passage that says Daniel purposed in his heart to follow God. So some texts say he determined or he resolved. So there's a, there's sort of a, he's planting a flag. He's, he's decided, I am going to do this. I am going to choose to be obedient. And then uh, what, what got my attention eventually was Daniel chapter 5. So I want to read a, a couple verses here. So this is, um, this is an event that takes place just shortly after Nebuchadnezzar has died. So Nebuchadnezzar is the big king, reigned for 37 years, and uh, then he passes away. And at, at the time that he passes away, his son Belshazzar, who for a while had been co-regent, it gets pretty complicated because, of course, kings had sons by all kinds of different women. And, and everybody's, there's palace intrigue and everybody's killing everybody else and but, but we think, piecing together what we can, that uh, Belshazzar is sort of a co-ruler, vice-king for a while. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies, and Belshazzar throws this big party. 
Uh, and this is the night that uh, the Persians have surrounded the gates of Babylon, and, and yet he's got a big drinking party going on, and he gets, the, he gets the, the special sacred goblets out of the treasure house that had been found in the temple, and everybody's drinking out of those. And then the hand appears and writes on the wall, and, and you know, nobody can read it. And so Belshazzar panics. And uh, we're picking up uh, in verse 10, and it says, The queen, so this would have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, his, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, and Belshazzar's mother. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen said, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is in your kingdom a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom uh, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. So she encourages him to go get Daniel, and, and that Daniel will interpret the dream, which he, or interpret the writing, which in fact he does. And what hit me as I was uh, thinking about this was, uh, a few things. First of all, so it's almost 40 years later and Daniel's still around. Um, that's interesting and significant that he survived in that kind of uh, chaos that, that is clearly in the courts of these guys. But secondly, he hasn't been in favor for a while. So if the queen has to say to him, I remember this guy a long time ago that your father used to go to when he was in a bind. And if Belshazzar doesn't even know about Daniel at this point, then obviously he had fallen out of favor and he had been pushed down. Uh, but when he is brought back, right, the counsel that he will give, uh, not just his ability to, to interpret uh, what has been written, but the counsel that he gives is wise and it's clear, right? He has stayed the course. He has continued to follow God. And I think, uh, I think there is something about that obedience over time, that tenacity, that resolve that we really need to lean into and uh, think about as we move forward. So I want to step back from Daniel 5 for just a second because my message today is one in which if you, if you miss what I'm going to say in the next few points, you may come away with a completely uh, unchristian uh, understanding of what I'm saying. I don't, I don't want that to happen. Uh, so I want to be sure that, you, that this is all framed uh, in a broader context. I am going to tell you, you know, keep after it. Keep trying. Pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and keep on the right path. And, uh, you know, there's, there is, when you sin, and you will, we all do. When you mess up, when you get discouraged, when you're fearful, some of you are getting pushed down right now. When that happens, pick yourself up, go back and do the right thing, and keep going. And don't give up. Never quit, right? Winston Churchill, never give in, never give in, never give in, never quit, right? Just keep going. I want you to hear that. So, but I want to frame it in a broader context. So let me start with this point. The, the Christian faith is about grace, not about tenacity. It's not about our works, right? Uh, 
The Christian faith is not this I do, it's this he, this he did. God in his grace and his mercy sent his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The Christian faith is not, I am going to pick myself up by my bootstraps, try harder, be good, do the right things, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to will my way through it, okay? No, that, that will not work. So you need to hear that the gospel says that we are in worse shape, worse condition than we could possibly dare imagine. But that God's love and grace and mercy is, is even more amazing and more free than we could possibly comprehend. And so uh, the Christian faith is a gift. Becoming a child of God is a gift. I, I have used this spectrum many times, but let me just frame it again. There is a, there is a spectrum. At one end, negative five, we're as far from God as we can be. At the other end, positive five, we're fully in his presence. Zero is a point of crossing a line from negative to positive numbers and from death to life, from darkness to light, from, from spiritual darkness to spiritual rebirth, right? And we cannot, be at, we cannot be at negative five or positive five this side of the grave. But the implication is when we die, we're headed in one direction or the other. And we will spend eternity as far from God or fully in his presence. And we are born in negative numbers. This is the bad news. We are not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are broken. Our hearts don't work the way they're supposed to. Every aspect of our life has been affected by sin. We inherit it. So we are born in negative numbers. We come to faith. We cross over on the basis of God's free gift. For by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We cannot boast. We don't have any part to do with this. God will move us. God will change us. The Spirit of God comes into us. We cross over. At the moment that we yield our life to Christ, it is a free gift from God. So point number one, Christianity is about grace. It's not about works. Point number two, works are expected. Okay? When, when we get over to point one, we are expected to partner with God in, in growing in the likeness of Jesus. Right? If we do not partner with God, if we do not do certain things, if we do not discipline ourselves for godliness, we do not press on towards the goal for the prize of the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus, we stall. And lots of people stall. And so we are told that, that the Christian life includes our willing our way forward under the, under the leadership and transformation of the Spirit of God. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God. We don't contribute to that, except our sin. The only thing we, the only thing we contribute to that equation is our sin. God does that. Our sanctification is a partnership with the Holy Spirit. God will not do it on his own. We cannot do it on our own. And so we have to position ourselves in ways that the Spirit of God is going to do in our heart what we can't do for ourselves. And so there are things we are expected to do. We are expected to repent and to confess. We're expected to be humble. We're expected to serve. We're expected uh, to, to worship. We are expected to care for the poor. We are expected to do these things. These things are expectations. And 
right? We, 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 we don't have a choice in terms of how we map this out. It's not free form. God has given us directions about what it looks like to live a life in obedience to him. In addition to there being things that we're exposed to do, there are things we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to lie and cheat and steal. We're not supposed to push ourselves forward. We're not supposed to sleep around, right? There are things that we're not supposed to do. Now, we will do all of those. We will mess up. We are fallen. So you go back to point number one. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? We are not going to be able to will ourselves to be who we want to be. It doesn't happen that way. We depend upon the forgiveness and mercy of God. But we are in the game. Obedience is expected. Point number three, it's not just one-time obedience. It's obedience over time, even when it's hard. So we are expected to simply keep doing the right thing over and over. In in an interesting book by Eugene Peterson uh, called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, he reflects on Psalms 120 through 134 which are songs that uh, the Jews would often sing as they were uh, marching up to Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem is at the top of a hill. It's a big, big hill. So as they're marching up towards Jerusalem in the temple, they would, they would sing various psalms. These psalms are uh, understood to, to, to emphasize the point that you got to do the right thing over time to see the kind of change in our life that we want. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And uh, uh, now the good news is that the longer we do the right thing, the easier doing the right thing becomes. Whatever we do, good or bad, it's easier to do it the next time. And so the longer we do the good things, the easier it becomes to do good things. Uh, But the more we hold on to certain sin, the, the deeper those roots grow and the more they can undermine us. And as a result, point number four, uh, uh, obedience is expected, but it is hard. Consequently, it is rare. I wish there were a lot more very kind, godly, wise uh, people we would expect it. And the reality is, uh, wow, it's hard to change. And we don't see nearly as much as we would like. I am reminded, I went to college in Indiana. The Indianapolis 500 is a big deal if you go to college in Indiana. And so it sort of dominates a big part of the spring. You go to time trials, you go to practices, you go to all these things. And, and uh, if you talk to people who've been at the Indy 500, they will say that that, that those first minutes after the, uh, after the green flag has been dropped. And there's 33 cars. And they sort of, they, they, there's a little sprint there as they head into corner one. They slow down corner one and corner two. And as they come out of corner two, right, that's when the race really begins. And they accelerate uh, to 200 miles an hour. And they're all together and they look, they look fast and cool and it's loud and it's just an amazing moment and then they're, they're going to sprint down uh, they, they slow down for turn 3 and 4 and then they're sprinting again 200 miles an hour and they just say it's just a there's, a there's this magic moment about the start of the race however uh, shortly after the race starts they start dropping out right 
technical problems, communication problems, wrecks, all kinds of things happen. And a lot less than 33 cars finish the race. And there's a sense in which we see that in the Christian life. In Joshua 14, there's a report about Caleb. Uh, he's 85 years old, and uh, he's, he's, he's vigorous. He's, he wants in the fight. He wants a big assignment. Uh, Joshua's giving out assignments, and, and some of the young men have not stepped up, and Caleb's like, I'm in. I want it. Give it to me. I, you know, I'll, I'll do this. It, it, we can get better. We can finish with a kick, right? There, there is that, there, there are those people that do that. But when you step back and you look at Scripture, you see that uh, a number of passages are written from the vantage point that we have to be prodded to keep going. So 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, expressing his frustration that he's feeding people uh, milk when he should be feeding them meat. But they're not ready for meat, right? They, ha- they have not been growing as they should. And then uh, Jesus' uh, parable of the four soils suggests that some people will start big but uh, die out and not grow healthy. And then you've just got all these passages. In, in Philippians 3, Paul writes, Press on towards the goal for the prize of the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Because people don't want to press on. And in Galatians 6, it says, Do not grow weary of doing good. Right? Because we grow weary of doing good. And the book of Hebrews is written in large part to people who are going to quit. And, and the, that faith chapter at the end, he says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. Right? Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. And, and, and we've got all these passages that are sort of implying, and when you step back and think about it, that people were ready to give up. And then... When you look at the Bible just for a, a sort of a study of how people do, there's about a hundred people in the Bible about whom we have enough information to know how they finish. And only about a third of those finish well. Uh, many people like David start well. A man, he's a man after God's own heart. He kills Goliath, right? He's, he's been faithful. He's doing the right thing. But over time, David's life is a mess, right? He multiplies wives and it becomes a bad soap opera towards the end. Solomon, the same thing. You read about Josiah. Josiah does the right thing. He comes to power as a young child. He does the right thing for decades and decades and decades. And then he messes up at the end. You read about Uzziah, who, same thing, he's doing the right thing, he's doing the right thing, he's doing the right thing, and then he grows jealous and he messes up. So it is obviously fairly easy to mess up. But, point number five, it can be done. You and I can finish strong. Christian life is not... It's about grace, it's not about works, but we are expected to work. We are expected to obey. We're expected to discipline ourselves for godliness. It's hard, and it's hard over time. It's not just a one-time call that we've been given. We're supposed to keep obeying. It's rare, but it can be done. You can do it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, we can be more than conquerors through him who loves us. We can keep running the race. You can get back on the horse. You can pick yourself up, right? Tenacity is something that we can do. And I say this knowing that some of you are, you feel like 
you've been betrayed or you're suffering the loss of a child or you're battling cancer or there's just all kinds of things that seem to be holding you down. I want to say you can do it. It's not a, there's not a question of whether or not you can make it. You can make it. But you have to keep working. For, for what it's worth, this whole idea of tenacity, resilience, is uh, whatever you want to call it, perseverance, has become uh, sort of in vogue in the last uh, couple years. So uh, about two years ago, Angela Duckworth, a professor from the University of Pennsylvania, released a book called Grit, uh, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And it was based in large part on her sort of breakthrough findings at West Point. West Point had tried for over 100 years to predict who was going to make it through West Point, who was going to survive, and they didn't have much success. You know, it didn't, it didn't look like uh, intelligence was the right measure. It didn't look like uh, athletic ability was the right measure. It didn't look like even leadership because you could, you could say, okay, these are captains of sports teams, but they didn't have, a, uh, have any sort of particular propensity to, to, to make it. So they kept, they had all these studies to trying to say, who's going to make it? Who's going to make it? Who's going to make it? And she, and you can take her test, you can go online and take her test for uh, tenacity, for, for grit. But she came out and eventually said, um, high intelligence, opportunity, and even material resources are of limited value when uncoupled from, and here was the key things, a high tolerance of pain, and perseverance. In uh, resilience, the science of mastering life's greatest challenges, Stephen Southwick has been studying people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and he lists a whole bunch of things in his book about uh, the qualities that they find in people that make it. Uh, Gordon MacDonald, who has, has preached here, Gordon MacDonald, uh, wrote a book called A Resilient Life in which he tells his story. He said he, he came to understand in his early 30s that uh, the success he'd enjoyed so far was largely from personality. He said uh, you can make it with some success into your 30s on the basis of personality. But the things that make you successful in your 30s start to grow pretty tired in your 40s and if you're still relying on it in your 50s, then everybody starts to feel sorry for you because, you okay, what happened? That looks good in a 30-year-old. It doesn't play well in a 50-year-old. And he realized what has got me where I'm at has been my personality. And he also realized that he was from a family of quitters. And so he sets out on this, on this intentional study to say, how do I, before God, develop resilience how do I become a person of character? How do I build that into my life? What does it look like? There are lots of books out there uh, all of a sudden on this topic of resilience. We see it, I would argue, we see it in the Bible before that, 2,000 years before that. We see the celebration of it uh, with Daniel purposing that he's going to follow God and carrying through. Um, I, I think it, it's also, um, there, there's all kinds of other things that, that we could 
think about profitably. I tend to think that technology is making us softer than we realize in ways we don't realize. I think that as Christians, we rightly celebrate the point of conversion and, we, and we're excited about that, but we don't celebrate ending well nearly as often as we should. Uh, I think that success is harder to survive spiritually than failure. Uh, I think there, there, are a number of, there are a number of different ways we could try and unpack this topic of perseverance. I'm going to leave you with three things to think about. Number one is I'm persuaded that Daniel makes it in large part because he had friends. Daniel makes it in large part because he has good friends. And, and we're going to look at this in, in greater depth next week. But the fact of the matter is you're going to get knocked down at some point. We're going to get knocked down. And the question is, is there anybody there to help you pick yourself up? And you need friends like that. So we'll come to that next week. Secondly, um, it's really helpful if we understand that life is going to be hard. Because if you think it's going to be easy, then it turns out to be a lot harder than it needs to be. But if you expect it to be hard, then it's not quite as hard, perhaps, as it is. And hard can be good. God can work in hard. God does some of his best work in hard. And so we just need to understand, this is what Scripture tells us. Do not be surprised when you encounter various trials, Paul, or Peter writes in 1 Peter 4. And Jesus says, hey, I, I, was suff- I suffered, you should expect that you're going to suffer too. We get this over and over, but there's this mindset that says, I'm a good person, I'm trying to follow God, I should get, you know, I should have an easy life. You know, like Paul's, like Jesus's, like who? Why would we think life was going to be easy? We want it to be easy, but it's not going to be easy. So we need to understand that uh, hard can be good. I had lunch this week with a, with a man who is going through a trial that no one would wish on anyone. And he said as much, right, I, I, this, is, this has been horrible. And he said, but in ways I can't quite articulate, it's been one of the greatest blessings in my life as well. So we just need to understand Life is going to be hard. The third thing that I would like you to hear is that quitting doesn't work. So this week I went back and, and, and did some digging around until I found uh, in my journal some notes that I had written um, about three weeks after my stroke. And so I'm at this point, I'm at RIC. I've moved out of ICU in the hospital. I'm at RIC and I'm in, you know, therapy. It's basically a nursing home. Uh, it's more than, a, than that, it's, but I am, I am uh, I'm in a wheelchair. I am spending my days uh, in therapy. So I, had, I was trying to be very positive and optimistic. It seemed to me like I had more support than just about anybody could hope for, from my family, from my friends, from the church. I thought, you know, I, I, can, I can work harder than anybody here to get better. Now, there's other people that are working as hard as they can work, but I thought, I'm going to work as hard as anybody has worked to get better. So I wasn't just doing physical therapy and, and occupational therapy and speech therapy. Uh, I was doing those twice a day if I could get them. And I also signed up for everything they offered. So I did cooking therapy. 
I did music therapy. I did art therapy. I did canine therapy. If they offered it, if somebody could say, I think you'll get better if you do this, I say, okay. I mean, it's, it's do that or, you know, lay in a bed in, in this room where I, I can't read it because my, my vision didn't work well enough. So I'm like, I'm in. I'm in for anything anybody wants me to do. And this went on for about a week. And then there was a day I was in, um, we, they called it aerobics. So there's like five of us in, in wheelchairs, and they want us to lift our hands. So that was, okay, let's lift our hands. Okay, you know, Mr. Wood, if you're doing that so well. And so <laughs> I, I stopped at one point, and, and the, you know, the ever effervescent, perky, you know, therapist said, um, Mr. Woodruff, what's, what's the matter? And I go, you know, usually when I'm exercising and doing this, I have weights in my hand. She goes, we can get you weights. What, what kind of weight would you want? She goes, we've got a one-pound weight, we've got a two-pound weight, and we've got a five-pound weight. They were all pink, by the way. <laughs> so, well, I'll take the five-pound weight. So she gives me the five-pound weight, and I'm doing that. And after about a minute and a half, I realized I really can't lift five pounds. So I was scared I was going to drop it on my head, and uh, okay, well, I better stop. And I thought, really? This is where I'm at. Like, how did this happen? I can't lift five pounds. And I, I, I sort of backed my wheelchair up and I wheeled myself into my room. I, I went, got in my room, I got in my bed, I pulled the covers over my head, and I started to cry. I, started, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I cried for about five minutes. And then I, I remember, remember, uh, remembering this line out of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia where he's got Lucy, one of the young girls, crying. And he says, crying is okay while it lasts. But the thing is, at some point you have to stop and then you have to figure out what you're going to do next. And that's sort of where it was. I'm like, okay. So, you're hiding in a bed. You're crying. Now what's the plan? Right? Because this doesn't lead anywhere. So I threw the covers off. I got back in the wheelchair. I wheeled myself back to the aerobics class. I thought, I don't have options. Quitting is not a viable option. So I want to say to you, life will be hard. The Christian life can be very hard. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. Get yourself up. Confess your sin. Keep moving. There isn't another viable option. And you can do that, right? You can absolutely do that. In fact, that is what we were invited to do. Daniel faced bigger hurdles than we're facing, and he persevered. We can persevere. So press on towards the goal for the prize, the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. And do it knowing that it is your responsibility, but at the same time, he who began a good work in you will complete it. You're not doing this alone. God will help you put one foot in front of the other and do the right thing. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, thank you for your love, your care, your grace. We thank you that our relationship with you does not pivot around our grit or perseverance, that uh, you have done everything that needs to be done for us to gain of forgiveness and to come back into a restored relationship with you and to gain eternal life. Thank you for that. 
and yet we don't want to stay there. We want to grow. We want to see the fruit of the Spirit ripen in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the things we're after. A heart yielded to you. Help us keep doing the right thing. Help those that are particularly discouraged and, and wondering whether or not they can keep doing the right thing, to keep doing the right thing. Spirit of God, empower us to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.